Welcome back to the podcast, Unbinding the Bible. This is episode 74, Revelation, the White-Robed Multitude. And in this episode, we're going to look at Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 17, which will bring us to the end of Revelation 7. And we're going to tie together a few loose ends of things I've not yet mentioned in the previous few episodes. But as we come to the end of Revelation 7, we're going to just see a beautiful picture of peace and harmony and rest and protection and satisfaction and the flourishing of human life, which ultimately is the direction that the entire biblical story is headed. And Revelation 7 being a slight interlude into the middle of the sixth and seventh seal gives us a perfect glimpse of just exactly where redemption is taking us and where the world ultimately will one day be for those who trust in the Lamb. And so I'm excited to get into this and to, like I said, just tie in a few more loose ends for you, but to allow you to see where your place may be as a follower of Jesus and what incredible encouragement you can take from the latter half of chapter 7. So let's just jump right into it. To begin this week's episode, allow me just to read Revelation 7, verses 9 through 17. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these, clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and He will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Now what you and I get to right when we begin this passage is we hear some interesting words of John. Right in verse 9, he simply says, After this I looked. And I do want to draw your attention um, back a handful of verses to the earlier part of Revelation 7. Because in verse 4, we see this, that John says, I heard... The number of the sealed, 144,000. And then here in verse 9, John says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number. Now, many commentators, um, unfortunately in my mind, um, when they get to these two sections in the book of Revelation, they see them as describing two separate groups of people. One is an explicitly numbered group. Um, but and the other one is a multitude that no one can number, and it might appear on the on the surface that that's what's going on, uh, if you forget 
that apocalyptic language um, uses this idea of hearing something and then turning to see that thing using the words heard and looked or hear and see or heard and saw and noticing that they are actually describing the same reality. And I'm not making this up and you know that that's the case because we've already encountered this hear, see, apocalyptic idea twice in the book. And if you remember all the way back in chapter 1, verses 10 through 12, uh, John says, I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, and then I turned to see the voice. And we played off of this a little bit. It was the first time I had introduced this concept to, to you, at least on this podcast. But the voice that John heard sounded like a trumpet. But when he turned to see that voice he saw one like a son of man. And so what I tried to explain in that moment was that hearing something like a trumpet evokes the imagery of what a trumpet signified in the Old Testament, you know, calling the congregation to worship, calling the the, the people to battle, the Lord entering his temple, and all of those themes accompanied the very presence or the one coming like a son of man. And so what John hears and he sees go together. Um, We also looked at this apocalyptic idea when we came to chapter 5. John heard the elder speak of the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. But when he turns to see this lion, he sees a lamb instead. The lamb, though, is not someone different from the conquering lion. Rather, the lamb is how the lion conquers. Hearing about a lion and seeing a lamb describe the same reality. And I'll repeat something now that I have said a a number of times, and that is that this is an apocalyptic strategy of combining two separate things and forcing us to hold them together as one reality in our minds. What John hears and what John sees go together, but the way they go together helps clarify both what we hear and what we see. And as we've already discussed in episode 67, Revelation, the lion and the lamb, the lamb is the embodiment of the lion, not its replacement. In other words, the slaughtered lamb is how the lion manifests himself in the world. Now, what's really a lot of fun is when you recognize this pattern and you recognize this hearing and seeing something, what you come to now in the passage I just read for you is that you find that the same thing is happening. John hears the number of the sealed, 144,000, and then he looks and he sees a multitude that no one can number. So this simply affirms the earlier interpretation that I gave that the 144,000 sealed servants of God are his true people those who are in Christ. And so using the power of apocalyptic language, then Revelation 7 is simply giving us two perspectives on the same group of people. Sealed warriors numbered for battle, those who through the Spirit are engaged in a battle that is not against flesh and blood, and those who are clothed in white robes and resting comfortably with their Savior. So they are both a numbered group. I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000, and they are a multitude that no one could number. Now, that, that sounds contradictory, right? Like how in the world can it be both of these things? And yet this is something that's really consistent 
throughout the New Testament. I, I could give you an example just from Paul's own life. So Paul is writing to the um, to the Corinthians in the book of Second Corinthians, and he refers to these ideas all the time. Uh, Paul will say to them in verse um, eight. Well, let me let me read actually a handful of verses from Second Corinthians six. But Paul says. As servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance. Um, we commend ourselves to you in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, and hunger. I mean, what a what a negative list of descriptions that Paul's giving here. It sounds really, really uh, terrible. And then he, but he kind of flips, and then he says in verse six, by purity knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, for the weapons of righteousness, for the right hand and for the left. So you see, wow, that's some really positive attributes that Paul's describing. And then he keeps right on going in the same sentence, and he gives us this list of things that appear to be the exact opposite, and yet in Christ, they're perfectly held together as one reality. Listen to what Paul says, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise. We are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. And so here's Paul giving us this reality of how this contradictory looking thing on the surface appears to be obviously polar opposites, and yet he brings them together in one reality. Paul very clearly identifying his own life and ministry through the very reality of Jesus's life and how Paul seeks to understand his own ministry um, through that lens. And we've looked at this in, um, in previous podcast episodes. But I want you to focus in a little bit now on Revelation 7 and, and what John tells us about this multitude that no one could number. Well, the first thing he tells us is that they are standing. And right here is the, the reason again why I pose the question and want to keep reminding you of the, the exact question posed at the end of chapter 6. This section, of course, is the answer to that question. When those who... Um, those who are sealed by God, his warriors prepared for battle, his priests, those people of, of his that were ransomed for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, those for whom the lamb has shed his blood, those people are able to stand. And they are standing before the throne and before the lamb. Revelation's way, of course, of describing God and his son, God and, and Jesus, or the father and the son, or God and the lamb, right? Precisely the ones that the great ones of the earth are fleeing from. And again, you have this two-sided reality. You have the one presence of God and the lamb, but the, the depending upon the heart and the outlook of those who are either for God or against him, they see this one presence in two very different ways ways. And I think Paul's explanation in 2 Corinthians of how he can both be dying and yet live, be poor yet have great riches, um, having nothing yet possessing everything, is a perfect description of how this reality works itself out. 
And so it's important as you're reading through the latter half of Revelation 7 to see this word standing. And in my Bible, I have it underlined twice. It's just a reminder that there are some who are fleeing from the presence of God and the Lamb. But there are others that the Lord, because of who he is to them, have given them the privilege of being able to stand in his presence. And so Paul will encourage Christians, let's say, in Ephesians, in Ephesus, when he writes his letter, he encourages them with the armor that God has provided for them to stand, that stand their ground, to stand in the evil day, not to back down from the enemy's onslaughts or the enemy's attack because Jesus has made them and has equipped them and has gifted them with the freedom and the ability to stand confidently in his presence. Now, if you continue reading on in the same section that we just looked at in Revelation 7, you see that John also describes these people as being clothed in white robes. Now, this is where things start to get really fun because being clothed in white robes is the very attire that the martyrs under the altar in the fifth seal are promised and are actually given. We, we looked at this a handful of episodes ago in Revelation chapter 6, 9 to 11. These individuals crying out for justice, crying out that the Lord God would do something to avenge their blood on those who dwell on the earth. And they are told to wait a little bit longer, to rest a little while longer while being clothed in white robes until the number of their fellow servants um, should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. And so if you even go back a little bit um, further in the book, you know, to the Christians in Sardis, we saw that the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. And so to receive these white garments was a symbol. It was a symbol for the church in Sardis. It was a symbol for these believers under the altar. It was a symbol of their faithful witness to Jesus, a sign of their victorious witness unto death, a symbol of them having embodied the pattern of the Christ. And so this multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, are those who, by embracing the pattern of the Christ, have conquered with lamb power and are assured the same vindication, resurrection, protection by the Spirit that Jesus received. And this is why in Revelation 7, 14, John hears that they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Now, right here, we're given a really powerful apocalyptic, apocalyptic image just to ponder. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Now, any one of you who has ever done laundry and when you need to get stains out, the, the first half of this sentence makes sense. They have washed their robes and made them white. Okay, that would be a great thing. You and I might tend to put a little bleach in our water and we wash light colored clothes with other white colored clothes because we don't want certain, you know, we, we call it, <laughs> we don't want different colors to bleed, right? We don't want them to spill out and to have our red t-shirts turn our white pants pink by the end of the, of the laundry. But here we're not given something that makes a lot of sense in our minds. Robes do not become white when you wash them in blood. 
And so, the, again, when, when we talk about apocalyptic language, and I, and I try to refer to this at least, you know, every few episodes, I know that you're tracking with me, I know that you understand Revelation is apocalyptic, but it's important to keep remembering because you don't take these images literally, and there are plenty of images still to come in the book that when people want to take them literally, it it confuses everyone. And I don't think um, it, people mean ill by it, but this is just another example of a time where you don't want to take it literally. It makes no sense if you do, and yet this is exactly what robe be, robes become if you wash them in the blood of the Lamb, but not in a literal sense. You see, the sin and the filth and the corruption and the brokenness in our own lives gets covered as we allow another one to take on those corruptions himself, to take on those corruptions into himself and put them to death. This is what the New Testament affirms Jesus did when he shed his blood for the life of the world. And those who embrace his gift, his sacrifice, his suffering on their behalf, and seek to follow him by the way they live their own lives, are clothed, if you will, with the same purity that he is. They put on Christ, as Paul talks to the Galatian Christians about. And so in Christ, we become the very things that he was while on earth. And so what Revelation 7 is doing once again is it is completing a trajectory that I alluded to when we first began to look at the four horsemen and the direction that the conquering and the conquest goes when kingdoms of this world rule the day. And in Revelation 6, we noticed a particular trajectory as we followed it through the four um, horsemen uh, through the first four seals, and that is that conquest leading to bloodshed with the red horse, leading to war um, and the bloodshed, of course, of other people and wanting to dominate other people in the way that you live your life, ultimately leads to famine. And then that ultimately leads to death. It's a, it's a trajectory of conquering and defining conquering as stamping out your enemies and lording it over them with authority and, and power as the world defines it, and it ultimately leads to death. And yet here in Revelation 7, what we have is conquest again. We have Jesus, right? We've just been looking at him from Revelation 5, and if we take this concept forward, Jesus conquering as the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, by suffering first, then his type of conquering also leads to bloodshed, but it's his own blood, not the blood of his enemies. And when you do something like that, when you conquer in that way, shedding your own blood as Jesus did, it leads not to famine and to death, which is what happens in the kingdoms of this world, but rather it leads to hunger and thirst being satisfied, which ultimately leads to life. And this is exactly the way John describes reality in the latter half of chapter 7 in Revelation. Let me just read it for you again. These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. 
they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Okay, so here we go. Bloodshed, right? But it's the lamb's blood. So let's see what comes as a result of those who have white robes, who stand in the conquering and the victory of the one who sheds his own blood for the life of the world. Let's see the way John describes reality now. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. Now, servants in his temple, yeah, that's right. These are priests, which is precisely what human beings were created to be originally in the garden. This is the kingdom of priests that Jesus has made us into from every tribe and language and people and nation, right? The fourfold view of the entire world that has been gathered to be followers of the Lamb. It says they, well, he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence, right? The very presence that once again caused the great ones and the rulers and the kings of the earth to flee away from, these individuals now receive rest and shelter in his presence. Verse 16, they shall hunger no more, neither thirst anymore. Now, right here, is the very opposite of the third seal and the third horse, which is an indication of famine. People not having enough to survive. There being economic hardship and difficulty all around the world, right? That's what ensues when the bloodshed of others becomes the way you define conquering. But when you define it as self-sacrificial, compassionate, dying love for one's enemies the way Jesus has, it directly results in hunger and thirst being satisfied. And this is precisely how John describes it. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Now, aside from the fact that Revelation 7, 16, and 17 sound beautiful and, in my mind, perfectly um, pick up this trajectory, these two verses, actually, 16 and 17, um, are pulled straight out of Isaiah chapter 49. They've actually, um, from the very chapter, that immediately follow the second servant song in Isaiah. And we spent a number of episodes looking at the servant songs from Isaiah. Um, we looked at them in episode 34, The Servant of the Lord. Episode 35, Why Does the Servant Suffer? And then in episode 37, The Servant Creates Servants. And I, I know I do this periodically, and you're welcome to ignore me if you wish, but I always think it's helpful, and I will encourage you to do it here too, is to, to go back when you have time and re-listen to those episodes. Because the things that are happening there, what I'm trying to explain there, is that what, what Jesus is doing is his coming to suffer is the way that he intends to bring about these blessings. And this is what very few people in, um, in Jesus' day even understood about what their Messiah was going to come to do. But, but the reason John uses these images here is that the lamb is the one who will be their shepherd. And this is, again, an apocalyptic strategy, right? How does a lamb 
become a shepherd. A shepherd is the one who leads the lambs, right? But when you quote something like Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. And now you see in verse 17 of Revelation 7, for the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. What you get is this apocalyptic image of the lamb is the way God demonstrates power. The lamb is the way the Lord shepherds his people. He does it compassionately. He does it self-sacrificially. And these are images now that John is pulling together for us with just huge ideas that are at play in the exact same time. And as a good shepherd, which you might know Jesus refers to himself as in John chapter 10, he will lead his flock to springs of living water. And so the idea here is not that God and the Lamb stamp out all opposition to their rule and squash their enemies. No, the idea rather is that the Lamb allows his enemies to squash him. To receive the worst this world could throw at him and then be raised to new life. To freely share with everyone all they need for life and flourishing. And again, when you think about our two concepts of conquering and the two trajectories that follow... Jesus conquered by allowing his enemies to conquer him. And when I said that in worldly kingdoms, bloodshed of others leads to famine and then to death, in Jesus' kingdom, his own blood leads to hunger being satisfied and then to life. But notice that Jesus as the servant of the Lord, Jesus as the lamb, is the one who is our shepherd In other words, it's through the suffering of Jesus that he's able to care so well for his people. And so here's just the few verses that that take place in Isaiah 49. I'll just read those for you as as we kind of wrap this episode up. Isaiah 49, 8 through 10. Thus says the Lord, in a time of favor, I have answered you. In a day of salvation, I have helped you. Um, Interestingly enough, Paul quotes this passage right at the beginning of 2 Corinthians chapter 6, immediately before he explains how he can be both poor and rich, dying and yet living, losing everything, but or you know having nothing and yet possessing everything. Paul's trying to explain to the Corinthians how it is that his life filled with all of the turmoil and hardship and difficulty is not a reason for them to lose confidence in him as a spokesman for God. Rather, it's that Paul's very life embodies the message of the gospel that he's at pains to get the Corinthians to understand. And the way Paul roots that is by quoting back again to this suffering servant song of Isaiah 49. So sorry, that was a little side note, but I do want to help you think that even the way Paul thinks, and here's the way John's thinking, clearly the way Jesus was thinking, these ideas of of suffering and and servant um, leadership get reinterpreted and redefined for us in the person of Jesus. And then Paul picks that up and runs with it in the way he works with his churches. But the passage in Isaiah 49 goes on. It says, I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages, saying to the prisoners, come out to those who are in darkness, appear. They shall feed along the ways, on all bare heights shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. For he who has pity on them will lead them, and by springs of water 
will guide them. Now you can hear the very clear echoes there, particularly in verses 9 and 10 of Isaiah 49. And this is what John is drawing upon. He's reminding all of his followers that their protection by the Holy Spirit, them being sealed as servants of God, bearing witness and being able to stand in the presence of God and the Lamb comes about because the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd has come to self-sacrificially die for them to reunite them with God in a way that actually causes their lives to flourish. And then he empowers those people through his spirit to be the very means by which he seeks to extend that same blessing to the world. And so this is what it means to be a Christian. This is what it means to be a lampstand. And this is what it means here to stand in the presence of God, to receive his very presence and all of the blessings that come with that so that flourishing comes first to us and then we can extend that to the world. And I just love verse 15 one more time in Revelation 7 where it says, Therefore, because they've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb, because the Lamb has given up his life for them, he is, has made them worthy to stand in his presence. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They don't have to fear. They'll always be protected. They will always be cared for. And they will always know that he is for them, not against them. That's exciting to me. And as we wrap up Revelation 7, this podcast keeps getting exciting to me. And I'm thankful again for you who choose to listen in every week or who've recommended this podcast to even one other friend. I really appreciate that. And I would, um, would definitely um, want to ask you to continue to do that, just to find a person online or someone you went to school with or someone you know in your church and anybody you think might be encouraged by this or might find this of use. Um, one idea that, that has surfaced recently as I've actually been meeting with a group of 10 to 15 20 somethings. Um, some of them are married, some of them are not, but we, um, every other week, we listen to one of these episodes on our own time. We come together for a meal, and then I lead us through some discussion questions about the, the points and what people are thinking about it, and it's actually going really well. And so that's a another trying to think outside the box of ways we can use these ideas to just encourage one another. And some people like to listen to podcasts alone. Others don't. They'd rather be in a group and a place of community. And I couldn't agree more with the community idea. And so that's just one fun way that we've been able to encourage people to get in the word and to see what Jesus wants to do in and through our lives. And so for those who have shared this with someone already, thank you for doing that. And uh, for those who've left me a rating or review, I also really appreciate that. If you've not yet left a rating or review and you would consider doing that, I would definitely appreciate it. Um, a lot of people listen to this on Apple iTunes. That's a popular place to, to leave your rating or review. I would really appreciate that. And again, a, a big thank you to those who support this podcast with a little bit of finances on a monthly basis. I really do appreciate that. It allows me to purchase materials that I need to keep this podcast going and to make sure that I am faithfully presenting the true Jesus to all of you who are listening. And so 
Again, I am excited for the, the direction we're continuing to go. I'm thankful for the feedback I get from those of you who listen each week. And I hope that you have a, uh, a wonderful um, Lenten season of this year, 2020, and that you're just drawn into the presence of Jesus um, in powerful, powerful ways. Until next time, have a great week.